be dismissed to kid time with Mrs. Ludwig. She is in the back and having an awesome time learning about the Lord. Renovation Kids is right downstairs to your left if you haven't been here before, and that's where they're headed. My name is Jeremy Kelly. I'm one of the elders here at Renovation. I'm glad to be with you this morning talking about the Tenth Commandment. We are there. I feel like we've been in the Ten Commandments for at least ten weeks now, right? Does that make sense? Um, so let's read again as we have been for the last several weeks as we've been walking through the book of Exodus. I'm going to read the entire passage that we've been talking about, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, and then we're going to jump right into the Word this morning. Everybody good with that? Everybody okay? Nod at me. You guys with me? I know it's a little hot. I'm going to keep asking you questions just so I know you're uh, awake and alert. Let's read it together. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. It may even in your Bible have that bold heading, the Ten Commandments above it. If you don't have your Bible with you, it'll be on the screen. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or, is, or that is in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me, keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to me, or I'm sorry, to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord, amen? So we have been walking through this for the last several, uh, several weeks, and what we have seen here is God's instruction through Moses to his people is he's setting up this community of people and this is his commandments to them in terms of their relationship with him in the first four commandments and then their relationship with each other in the remaining. And you see 
how God has designed for us to interact with him as he reveals to us who he is and how he's designed us to interact with each other. And, uh, and this one is interesting, and I'm going to jump right back to it in verse 17 and read it again, because this takes on a little bit of a different tone, and I want to point that out to us. In verse 17, we see, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And that's where we are going to camp this morning for a few minutes, several minutes. We'll see. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would use your word to speak to us this morning. You have revealed to us who you are. You are so gracious to us. And I pray this morning that you would give us new eyes to see, new eyes to see who you are, new eyes to see who we are, new eyes to see how it is we can overcome sin and relate to you. God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would cause the words in my mouth to be effective Change my heart this morning. We ask this in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. There is nothing worse in my life, this is an exaggeration, than being on a diet. Is anybody with me? I, I have a mental disorder, okay? And... It surrounds food, and you've probably noticed that because every time I'm standing in front of you, it becomes a reference point for me because I think of it so often. In fact, right now, I'm already thinking about lunch, right? Anybody? No, I'm just kidding. I'm not. <laughs> I was a wrestler. That was my problem. I grew up wrestling at Baldwinsville. I lost a lot of weight. I dehydrated myself. I starved myself. I talked the kid who had um, issues with his legs. He actually had a handicap where he, uh, he had issues uh, walking. It wasn't polio, but it was something else. And so they gave him a, uh, an elevator key at Baker High School in Baldwinsville. I talked him into making a copy for me so I could use the elevator. And, and I was so dehydrated, so sucked out as a wrestler that I didn't even want to walk the stairs. I would use the elevator in the high school until a teacher caught me once. But I, so I have a mental disorder now that I'm older. I just can never withhold from myself something I want to eat. Does anybody ever feel that way? And so recently I went on a diet. My wife said, listen, we're doing this. And we did. I did it for a couple of weeks. And it was powerful for that couple of weeks. But it was this particular diet where in the morning I could have a piece of grapefruit. And then for lunch I would bring a half a grapefruit, a piece of protein bread, and some lunch meat. Has anybody else done something as ridiculous as this in their lives? And I, I sat, I would go back to the little lunch area at the DA's office. I work at the district attorney's office. And uh, a colleague of mine is like, he's this dude who's like, he's like a food network guy. Like, it's ridiculous. I'm sitting there with my grapefruit, with my piece of protein bread, and a little Ziploc baggie of, of turkey lunch meat, and I'm sad. Like... <laughs> I'm really sad, and I look over, and this knucklehead brings out his leftovers from dinner, and it's like, it's like Giada or Guy Fieri was at his house last night. I mean, he pulls out chicken riggies that were just 
beautiful. Like, and I look over, and how many of you got, I have a new puppy. His name's Chewy. And when I'm eating, this dog just sits right there. <laughs> and he's just like, his head's tilting sideways, and he's just watching me. That was what I was like. It, my, I'm staring at my buddy Rob, and I, I have such affection for his chicken riggies that I can smell them, I can see them, I can watch him eat them and imagine what it must be like for him to be tasting it. And when I read this passage on coveting, that's the first thing I thought of, right? I coveted his lunch for two weeks straight as I watched him eat. You know, it's, it's not bad in Scripture to want something. That's not the issue here. That's not what God's getting at. And as we see in the, in the previous commandments, we see God addressing actions or God addressing words. But what we see here in verse 17 is something very, very powerful, and it gets to the root. It boils down to the bottom of, of what our issue is and what our problem is. And what God's addressing in verse 17 is the heart. The issue in coveting isn't wanting something, but wanting something too much. It's not desiring something, and the desire for something could be to desire something good. It could be to desire something bad. It could be to desire something that that maybe takes on a religious connotation or, or a biblical connotation, or it could be completely irreligious and a rejection of God and his laws. But, but the issue in wanting, as God cuts to the heart of who we are in relationship to him, is it's wanting something so much that you want it more than God. Does that make sense? That it begins to replace God. This is a really God getting to the heart of the first commandment of not putting anything in place of him and idolatry. And as God addresses covetousness this morning, my prayer is that we, this morning, we're going to have to take a few minutes together and we're going to have to get a little bit introspective and we're going to have to look into our hearts And we're going to have to come to a moment together through the scripture where we see the sin in our own heart so that we can address it today. I put up a slide of the Joneses. I don't know who they are. Uh, Bill's going to switch through the verses. There you go. No, I'll keep going back. Back, back, back. It was the first slide after the passage. The Joneses. I don't know who they are, but it, it seems to be an issue for us, does it not? Keeping up with the Joneses is, is something that really addresses our culture. And I know that when we think of, of covetousness or idolatry, many times we think of carven images or we think of things that we you know, would put to an extreme where someone worships uh, an animal or worships a statue or worships something else. But, but this is something very, very practical and very real for us in our culture today. And if anybody has been around the northern or the western suburbs of central New York, or really anywhere in the United States, there is a heart issue in the lives of every single one of us that has to do with these people right here. Look at that house. It's a beautiful house. It's a beautiful car. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. I think Bill Lozier's sitting back there wondering if Mrs. Jones is even good looking, right? But the issue is, what is it that someone else has that we want? And 
And this idea of keeping up with the Joneses, can I tell you, has become the object of many of our and our neighbors' pursuits in life, has it not? Is this not one of the major issues in the lives of probably every one of us as we as, we as believers, if you've received Jesus as your Savior, uh, are addressing in our own lives, or hopefully after today we'll begin to address in a new way, or someone who doesn't know Jesus at all, this has become the object of their affection, of their pursuit. Do I have as much as the dude next to me has? Is my house as big as his? Is my car as nice as his? Does my lawn look just like his does? Do, do my kids do everything that his and her kids do next door? Is that a big one? Can I tell you I live in Baldwinsville among groups of wonderful people who I love, where I grew up my entire life, and I'm so happy to be back there raising my family there, but I'm surrounded by a bunch of people who I love, and it's something I struggle with as well, and that I do life with at many sporting events, and what I readily recognize at an eight-year-old sporting event is that I'm surrounded by people who worship their children. Is that not true? Never forget one of my neighbors coming up to me after my daughter, who's now 14, was playing soccer at BISA, Ballinsville Youth Soccer, awesome program. And uh, it was fun. We watched her play soccer, and her and her buddy talked on the soccer field. And, and, and my neighbor came up to me. They're like, hey, are you going to get Sophie into club soccer? I'm like, holy cow, club soccer? She's like eight. Really? All right. Sure, we'll do club soccer. How much does it cost? It was like a thousand bucks. And I looked at my neighbor, I'm like, hey, you realize that every once in a while the soccer ball would run into Sophie and Elizabeth and interrupt their conversation, right? And, <laughs> and we're dropping a grand on club soccer. <laughs> it was it's amazing. I, I, I've seen people that they got personal trainers for their 10-year-old, right? They're getting them ready for the NFL or, the, or Major League Baseball. We want our kids to be where everybody else's kids are. And I watch, even as I look into my own heart and look in the mirror, these pursuits, the actual things that stress us out, that drive our lives, that become the object of our affection, of our desires, become the things that take up our time and our bank accounts and our existence. And God cuts right to the heart of it in this 10th commandment. He cuts right to the heart of it. What is it? I want to address that. So we see the last several commandments are actions or words. This is an issue of the heart. We've defined that. But what does it mean to covet? And, and it, this, this commandment, why is it at the very heart of what's actually wrong with us? First of all, what does it mean to covet? Take a look at Ephesians 5 with me this morning. Ephesians 5, chapter 5, verse 5. And let's read this together. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And so we see Paul addressing what it means to covet, and he brings it right back around to the first commandment. What, what we see here is we covet, as we desire things, 
to a degree that it becomes covetous as we desire things, not that we desire things, but as we desire them too much, it becomes, as Paul defines in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, what? Idolatry. John Calvin said this. John Calvin said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. My heart is as I look at it, as I see it, is, is like an idle factory. I'm consistently, within my own heart, producing idol after idol after idol. How many of you guys relate to what I'm saying this morning? You know, idolatry and covetousness and this idea of, of replacing our affection and our pursuit and our desire of God, our worship of God, placing Him on that pedestal, our continual perpetual idol factory heart that replaces him with stuff is talked about so often in scripture, but it seems to be maybe one of the least addressed things in the church as I look at it. Does that make sense? We talk, it doesn't make sense, but it, it, it's true. We talk about it very little as compared to how often the word of God addresses this issue in our hearts. It's really at the, at the bottom of it, at the, at the heart of it, it's really an issue of worship. It's an issue of, of where is God in his place in your life as compared to other things that you pursue or other things that you and I go after. It's one of the most frequently discussed issues in scripture and one of the most overlooked. I, I think... I think it's true that when we hear the word in our culture, idolatry, it hits our brain and it registers through experience and understanding and it pumps out a definition that's a little bit different than what God's getting at here in his word. As we hear the word idolatry, we think of you know, idol worship. We think of someone bowing down before something, an animal, an image. Uh, uh, you know, in the Bible, we see Dagon or, or we see these false god, Astrith, and we see these, these, these communities or these cultures that are worshiping what would be false gods, and God's addressing this to his people in, in, in the Ten Commandments, in the First Commandment, this idea of idolatry. But in the Tenth Commandment, he gets to the bottom of it. It's beyond worshiping a false, craven, carved image or a, a false god in that sense. Sense, but it gets right to the heart of other things that we put in replace of God in our lives and this idea of covetousness. It's not the wanting of something that's wrong, it's wanting it too much. Does what you pursue and what you want replace God? Does it, does it take his place? That's the issue. It's so hard to measure this, isn't it? I mean, if we were to really look at our lives, look at your day, look at my day, look at what I think about when I wake up in the morning, what I pursue day in and day out, something the Word of God uses very frequently to get at our hearts and to really be a measuring stick of where we're at in terms of our worship towards God is our money. Does he not? What does my bank account look like? I know in doing a very detailed budget not too long ago, I again recognized this issue I have with food, right? Holy cow, I spent that much on food. Starbucks, Kubal, sorry. <laughs> what do we worship? There have been, in the history of sports, a lot of bad decisions. Colossally bad decisions. 
but none worse than this particular decision. And I don't know if any of you know who that is. His name is Harry Frazee, and he was the owner of the Boston Red Sox. And Harry Frazee, the owner of the Boston Red Sox, really liked to finance plays in the city of Boston. And in 1919, after the Red Sox, I think, took sixth place in their league, he made one of the stupidest historical trade decisions in the history of baseball. He traded the greatest baseball player in the history of the world, Babe Ruth, for $100,000 to the New York Yankees. Amen. <laughs> I think it was hundred grand and maybe like a $300,000 loan, and he makes this deal with the New York Yankees to finance some play that nobody has ever heard of called, I think I wrote it down, No No Nancy or something. No, no, Nanette. There it is. Thank you. No, no, Nanette. I don't know how good that play was, but it's not very significant in the, in the history of, of our culture. But I know Babe Ruth is significant. Stupid, stupid trade. And it started, obviously, the curse of the Bambino, right? They didn't win another pennant until, I think, 1946, and they didn't win another World Series until 2004. And I, unfortunately, lived in Boston at that time. It was awful. In 2003, Boone hits the home run over the wall in the 10th inning, and all my friends sit down, and they begin to cry, and me and my wife stood up. We were like, yes, pointing in their face. You suck. You know, a hundred years. You haven't won anything. And then 2004, I sat in my living room like this, and my phone began to ring, and I just didn't answer it. <laughs> just, all my voicemail was full of everybody yelling and screaming at me. I went to Fenway once, and there's all these, there was, this was before they won the World Series, there was all these awful, you know, t-shirts and signs about Derek Jeter, and they just, their whole identity was hating the Yankees. It was, you could go to a Boston Pops concert, and they chanted, Yankees suck. It was terrible. So this was like, they were wrapped up in this whole deal, and then, I'll never forget, I hear this jawing and this jeering, and it looks like someone's going to get beat up. And as I look down the street walking out of Fenway, I see a guy holding a sign that says, that's okay, any, any organization can have a bad century. It was, it was awesome. It was a hilarious sign. Worst trade in baseball history. Probably sports history. And I thought of that as I looked at my own life last night. I was thinking about, as I was self-examining and getting introspective about this passage, Because every single day in my life, I make an even more colossal trade, colossally bad trade. So many times in my life, the trade that I make in my pursuits and in my affections is that of stuff and things and success and money and keeping up with the Joneses for however that looks for you and however that looks for me. And I put those things in place of God in my life. And it is an awful trade, is it not? 
It is an awful master to serve the master of things and stuff and getting after those things and coveting things and desiring things more than I desire God, desiring stuff more than I desire God. And at the end of my days, while I look back in a pursuit of something that's eternal or while I look back and realize I wasted my life pursuing stuff that never satisfied, that never really gave me that thing I was looking for. Does anybody hear what I'm saying this morning? Paul says it this way in Romans 7, verses 7 through 13. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Before I read on, let me address that passage. What is Paul talking about? He's saying before God said really specifically as you read this in context, before he realized what God was saying, thou shall not covet in the 10th commandment. He didn't realize it was sin. It lies dead. Does that make sense? So the law, like that mirror or like that plumb line that tells you that the wall's crooked if you're a contractor, it shows you that there's something wrong. In and of ourselves, we would have never realized that to covet is sin. It was lying dormant. But, but as Paul looks at the law and sees thou shalt not covet, it produces the sin. He realizes there's something wrong. He realizes he's crooked, that he's pursuing things that he shouldn't pursue above God. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. How many of you guys have ever experienced that before? Right? I, I, I see it in the lives of my kids, and my boys are sitting here now, and I hate to talk about them, but I'm going to. You ever tell someone not to do something? Can I have that cookie, Dad? No. Not till after dinner. What are you thinking about? I want that cookie so bad. <laughs> right? I'm going after it. I'm going to do whatever it takes. My, my son, Nathan, is a, a remarkable athlete at seven years old. And you ever see the movie Kung Fu Panda? Where the, like, he walks out of the room and Kung Fu Panda like finds a way to like jump up on the cupboards. He's like doing a split on the cupboards to get to the cookie jar. If you guys, anybody, if you haven't seen that movie, watch it. It's hilarious. My, Nathan could get to anything. He's unbelievable. Crawl the cupboards, crawl the counters. He could do whatever it takes and he's going to get that thing. But since seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, I wanted to do it more. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came in, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. 
It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What is Paul saying here? There's a lot in this passage. This passage in Romans is chuck full of truth that would take a lot more time and maybe someone more skillful than I to unpack for you. And I hate to just fly over it and and give you a, a, a preview of it, but I think it's relevant because what we see here is Paul seeing the commandment, thou shall not covet. And we see him getting to the heart of who he is and what his sin is. The sin of his heart was revealed to him. It was laid bare through the law. And he recognizes that the law displaying his sin and showing his covetous heart is something, he says, it killed me, brought death. I think if we really look at this in light of Scripture, as we have the rest of the Ten Commandments, in light of this law that God has provided, we can't be good enough, can we? The law provides for us the reality of who we are in relationship of, with God, and it kills us. It produces, produces in us this idea that the prophet said when he found himself in heaven, it's this idea of I'm undone. And, and frankly, folks, to covet good things potentially kills you as well as to covet bad things, to covet irreligious things or to covet what would be perceived as religious things, both of those pursuits equally kill us because, listen, here's what we recognize in looking at the law in light of who we are and who God is, and that's you can't save yourself and neither can I, amen? You can't. I can't. And Paul says, as I looked at my heart in relationship to the 10th commandment, that thou shalt not covet, I I was dead. It killed me. I recognized my inability to save myself, which really is the ultimate essence of pride and sin, this idea that we can pursue our own salvation when what it takes is is an understanding of how dead we are in relationship to sin and a reliance upon a Savior who did everything for us. Amen? Paul says, as I looked at this idea of the idle factory of my heart, of the covetousness of my heart, of the continuing and perpetual replacing of God on his throne and putting something else as the object of my worship and affection, I became undone, I became dead, it killed me. I sat last night, I have to be honest, in in reviewing this passage and I sat at the computer with my headphones on and I had to pray, I had to bow my head and say, my God, what do I pursue more than you? What is it? We shield ourselves. I know I do. We shield ourselves from this realization as we look at the Ten Commandments. I don't kill. I've never killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I don't lie. I believe in justice. I made it my vocation to be a prosecutor and bring people to justice. I believe in justice. I believe in truth. I believe in honesty. I believe in integrity. I don't do these things. And as I looked at the covetousness of my heart, I was laid bare and realized I am utterly sinful and in need of a Savior. 
I could no longer shield myself from the things that I don't do as I began to look at the reality of my heart and really where my affections lie. And like Paul in Romans 7, I said, I'm dead. It killed me. What do I pursue? God, what do I pursue more than you? Is it money? Is it love? Is it acceptance from other people? Is it beauty? Is it success? Is it sex? Is it to be wanted? Is it stuff? Is it my kid's success? Is it a bigger house? Is it nicer furniture? Is it another car? This is the thing that's going to make me. This thing, if I could just get it, is the thing that's going to make me happy. And we pursue and we follow the black hole of stuff that leads to nowhere. Jeremiah describes it like you, you have access to living water and you stick your face under a cistern of dirt and expect your thirst to be quenched. What do I pursue? Think of the woman in John chapter 4 who came to Jesus, who had had several husbands, and the man that, he was with, that she was with now was not her husband, and she travels to this well after the hours that the other women were there because they probably talked bad about her because she was perceived as adulterous, and she shows up there alone to get her water, and she walks for however many miles it was with her, with her trough to get her water to bring it back, and Jesus is sitting there, and he addresses her, and he says, You're going to get this water and you're going to thirst again, but I have for you living water so that you'll never thirst again. How many of us choose the other instead of the living water in our lives? We're pursuing the black hole of our neighbor's stuff, trying to get more, trying to get more, working harder, earning more money, buying more things, taking up our time with all sorts of stuff, and what we're leaving behind is the is the opportunity to be with Jesus, who is the end and the means. Amen? He is the one who fills our soul. He is the one that brings us the joy that, be- that goes beyond our ability to understand. He is the one that as we worship him and relate to him and love him and grow to know him more and pursue him in our lives as, our, as the object of our affection, he produces something in us that all of that stuff can never do. Amen? Are we pursuing something eternal or are we pursuing all the stuff that just goes away? That rusts, that falls apart. It's a black hole where you always, where I always, at the end of getting it, want more. Charles Spurgeon said this, You say, if I had a little more, I should be very satisfied. You make a mistake. If you are not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied if it were doubled. Is that not true? Paul speaks in Philippians about because of the gospel of Jesus Christ being able to be content with whatever he has. He says, I've had much, I've had little. I find myself at times with a lot of stuff, I find myself with a little stuff. And he's learned to be content with any of it because God is the object of his affection. If you make your spouse 
your object of worship and you believe that you're going to derive everything you need from that other human being, what happens when you lose your spouse? If you make that job the thing that's going to make you happy, what happens when that goes away? If you make the pursuit of money the thing that is going to bring comfort and joy and and everything in your life, what happens when the stock market crashes or everything is fleeting or the money goes away? If you make that car the thing that, if I could just get that, what happens when you don't get it or when you lose it or when someone hits it? And this really becomes the base issue in our lives, as I said before. Why do you get angry? Why do I get angry? I get angry when someone gets in the way of me getting what I want. Why am I afraid? Why do I have fear? What produces fear and worry in my life? The fear or the concern of losing something that I value more than God. The the fear or the worry of not getting that thing that I think I need to have. Is that not true? This becomes the base issue in our hearts. And God wants us to look introspectively into the idle factory of our heart and address it. So what do we do? Here's Paul at the end of Romans 7 and verse 13 talking about how this brings death. How I hope with me, as I have in my life, you're recognizing through the word of God the reality of our situation. But how many of you guys know the gospel brings hope? Does it not? The gospel of Jesus Christ brings hope. Look at Galatians 5.17 with me. I don't think I have it on the screen. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For they, these, are opposed to each other. Tim Keller addresses this issue of covetousness, and he says, he says, before knowing Jesus, it's a battle you can't win, but after coming to know Jesus and the spirit of God taking up residence in your life, it's a battle you can't lose. This is a battle with, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you can't lose because the Spirit of God, where before, before you knew Jesus, before you come into a relationship with him, you really become a slave to these things. And, and, and whether it's a religious pursuit in, in an attempt to save yourself and be good enough or it's an irreligious pursuit in an attempt to totally reject the law of God and just live a life of debauchery and doing whatever you want to do, either one of those things produces death But when you come to know Jesus, the Spirit of God takes residence in you. When you come to know the person, the God, the only God in the history of the world, because he is the only God, but as you look at all the other religions, he is the God that doesn't act towards his people as someone who says, you have to do this, this, or this to please me. He's the God that came down and died for us. Jesus is the one who came and lived the life none of us could live. Jesus is the one who came, who left his throne, who left this perfect triune relationship where each of the, of the persons of the Godhead surround each other and demonstrate for us relationship and loving others more than yourself. He came and, and as God, he lived the life that none of us could live and, and he worshiped God perfectly as God and as fully man. He lived the perfect life that that wasn't covetous, that wasn't consumed with stuff. And then he, the only one who didn't deserve to die, he not only died for sin, as we see him on the cross, he became sin. 
He became that worst part of each of us. He became the murderer, the serial killer, the child abuser, the adulterous one, the covetous one. He became the most despicable sight in the history of the world as C.J. Mahaney describes it. Because God in his justice punished sin in him. And all of the wrath of God for all of sin was poured out on him. He took upon himself the punishment that you and I deserved, that our covetous hearts deserved. And that physical pain of the cross many went through, and it's excruciating, but nowhere near as excruciating as the pain as we see in that cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Experiencing separation from God in that complete kind of way. He bore our sin. so that we don't have to. Now we live with great hope, do we not? Now we live in light of the cross, not getting up every day trying to do a bunch of stuff right to earn brownie points with God so that he likes us more today. No, not because of that, but because he loved us. And his love for us is an objective truth demonstrated in the gospel, demonstrated on the cross of Jesus Christ. If you ever doubt the love of God in your life, if you subjectively are going through something emotional that would maybe cause you to doubt the fact that you're loved, you can reach out of that subjective emotional thing and you can see something objective, something true. It happened. He died for you because he loves you and he made a way for you despite ourselves to be in relationship with God, to pursue that love and that affection that brings us true joy, true satisfaction. Amen? That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the hope of the cross. See, we have to come through Romans 7. We have to come through being killed by the law and recognizing that we fall short. So we stop trying to save ourselves. And so we wholly rely on the Savior, on the one who did it for us, so that we look at the law, the plumb line that shows that we're crooked, that we're covetous, that we go after things that are wrong, and, and, and we recognize the fact that we're sinful and we're undone, and then it produces in us this fleeing to the foot of cross that says, Jesus, I need you to save me. And he comes and he does it freely. You can't even add to it. If you could add to it, if you could, if you could add something you did to your salvation, then Galatians says Christ died for nothing. He did it completely for you, and all we have to do is rely on it and accept it and receive it, and then ask God, like in Galatians, to work in us a spiritual rejection of covetousness so that we can begin to pursue this side of heaven, making him the object of our affection in his grace, and in his love. Amen? Is that not a great hope this morning? I know that it is for me. Let's pursue him above all else together in this place. Amen? Let's pray.
Jesus, we come to you this morning in light of your word and recognize the issue. Our hearts are covetous. This morning we repent. Help us to pursue you above all else. Help us in your grace to recognize that you are the living water, that as we drink of it, we'll never thirst again. Everything good in our life is provided to us by you. And if things are good, we're content because you're our Savior. And if things are bad, we're content because you're our Savior. You are still on the throne regardless of how much money we have, regardless of of how well the job is doing, regardless of family struggles, regardless of how much stuff we have. Jesus, you're on the throne, and that's all that matters. You saved us, and that's what matters. You have rescued me when I was no longer looking for you, didn't even know to pursue you. You reached down into my life, and you saved me. And Jesus, I am so grateful this morning. Regardless of anything else, that is what matters. We worship you because you're worthy. We worship you in song today because you deserve it, because you're a great God. Help us to walk from this place and worship you with our lives. Make you the object of our affection. Make you the thing we think about in the morning as we get up. We pursue throughout the day. We're so grateful for the things that you give us this morning, Lord, and we ask that you not let them become you in our lives. Forgive us. Sustain us. Do a work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, everybody said.